the gospel reading for the morning is from the 15th chapter of John. It's part of what's called the farewell discourses, the, the, the several chapters right here in John that Jesus sort of pours out all teaching, hope, and prayer for his disciples. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer, because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> so in a time when we follow people on Twitter and we friend people on Facebook, what does it mean for followers of Jesus Christ to be told by way of today's text in John that we are not servants of Jesus, but friends? I don't think I've ever preached this text before. I couldn't believe that. I searched it. I've preached a lot of sermons on a lot of texts. Uh, but I don't think that I have, and I don't know why I've missed this portion of a key text in a prominent gospel I may not be alone, however, as I began to look at this, one commentator said, this is an oft-avoided text. Perhaps it's avoided because its promise is too magnificent and therefore too demanding. Some texts are like that. Legendary preacher Fred Craddock, who died not long ago, recalls a time many years ago when, as he says, a canceled flight, a motel near the airport, a search for a church within walking distance because the next day was Sunday, a housekeeper at a motel pointing him to one six blocks away, and my arrival at a cinder block building in which a few tired souls had already begun singing gospel songs, brought Craddock to a sermon by a nervous preacher on the text James 2, 23. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness, and Abraham was called the friend of God. The opening words of the sermon were, Abraham was a friend of God. I'm sure glad I'm not a friend of God. And the sermon was an explanation, really, of why he was relieved not to be a friend of God. He recalled the story of Abraham, pilgrim and wanderer, uprooted by the call of God from his homeland, who after years of homelessness died and was buried in a land not his own. Abraham was a friend of God, the preacher said. I'm glad I'm not. He then spoke of others who'd been called friends of God. Faithful in spite of dungeon and fire and sword and suffering, he concluded 
with a story about Teresa of Avila, remembered as a friend of God. The preacher recalled her begging in public to raise funds for an orphanage. After a series of setbacks, flood and fire and storm, repeatedly destroying the orphanage, Teresa in her evening prayers said to God, so this is how you treat your friends. No wonder you have so few. Fred Craddock recalls the sermon closed with the council. If you find yourself being drawn into the inner circle of the friends of God, blessed be you, but pray for the strength to bear the burden of it. Maybe this braces us to hear these words of Jesus from John's gospel. I do not call you servants any longer, but I've called you friends. In our time of following and friending, this is different. No longer servants, but friends. It sounds kind of like a promotion. Uh, Jesus had spent time that very night modeling, though, the life of uh, the servant as he washed the disciples' feet. Then suddenly Jesus bestows the title that no one among us would be presumptuous to claim, friend. It feels like a title. It seems like a promotion. But in fact, it describes relationship. It implies mutuality. It implies love. A servant works, works hard even, but at the end of the day, punches out and goes home. A servant doesn't necessarily engage the big picture of anything. But a friend, being a friend, it changes everything. Jesus goes further. I do not call you servants any longer because a servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from God. In other words, a friend of Jesus shares the knowledge of God's operation in the world, what God is up to and how God is doing it. It's true that the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but that has a bright side. The servant doesn't have to take work home with them. But if the servant becomes a friend, then the master's burden is the servant's as well. It seems that the friends of Jesus are never completely free of the duty to bear fruit for God and to pay the price of love. Because, Jesus says, I have made known to you everything that I have heard from God. Seriously, who wants to know everything? Most of us carry around with us lots of areas of deliberate ignorance, and we like it that way. From childhood, we carry this inspiring image of General George Washington with his troops in the biting wind and cold and snow at Valley Forge. Who wants that picture disrupted by the knowledge that Washington spent that winter in a warm farmhouse a few miles away? We don't want to know that. Who still wants to be thinking about the child who's hustling a few coins at the curb as we enter a restaurant and are handed a menu full of lavish choices? Comfort demands that we avoid meetings where passionate and informed speakers lay out the facts. 17 million children in America go to bed hungry every night. Worldwide, 1.8 million children are AIDS orphans in South Africa alone. 
Each year, a half million children are illegally imported into Western Europe to be exploited. If we spend one second naming all the street children of the world, it would take us together three years to get through all the names. There's a lot of information I'd prefer not to know. Is this what it means to be a friend of Jesus, to be told uncomfortable truth that leads us to unavoidable duty? The duty to love as God loves, to lay one down's life if need be? In that light, the light of a servant is looking better all the time. But then again, this is not unprecedented of Jesus. Jesus invites everybody to be a friend. It's not exclusive for him. He invites every person to be in the inner circle with him. Of course, that's not how the world sorts people. It is what Jesus does. It's not a promotion, this being called a friend with Jesus, It's certainly not exclusive because everyone is invited to come along. And this is hard duty. But it's the very core of love. It's the very heart of hope. In 2016, when we follow and we friend, what does it mean for followers of Jesus Christ that we are told by way of this text that we are now not servants of Jesus, but friends? It means deep, deep relationship. Deeper perhaps than we can imagine, certainly deeper than we've ever practiced before. Broader than our own hope will carry us on its own. And Jesus invites everyone into this friendship. Craig Barnes, who's president of Princeton Seminary, tells a story about growing up with two grandmothers, his city grandmother and his country grandma. Both women were products of the Great Depression and were convinced that could return any time. But the ways they coped with that fear were very different. His city grandmother tried to rise above the fear. She was an elegant lady, and even though she had very little money, she insisted on teaching her grandson's style and grace and manners. The difference between the two grandmothers was seen most vividly at the dinner table. City grandmother always had a lace tablecloth, very elegant. The grandchildren always had to be cleaned up and ready when they came to this very nice, elegant table. And the kids would also notice that there were too many forks on the table, forks everywhere. Why all the forks? City grandmother took a lot of pride in teaching them which fork to use when. And not just forks. She had to remember the rules. Always stand when a lady enters the room. Keep your napkin in your lap and keep your voice down, never too loud. And the last thing you wanted to do is spill a drink on that beautiful lace tablecloth. He loved his grandmother. He was enchanted to be in in her circle. But it was a lot of work for a little boy to eat a city grandmother's table. When Barnes and his brother would go down south to the farm to country grandma's house, things were very different. They always ate in the kitchen on a red and white checkered vinyl tablecloth. This tablecloth took spills just fine. Grab the sponge, you're good. You only had one fork at country grandma's house. If it fell on the floor, you could just pick it up and keep using it, but you better go quick because there's always dogs down there ready to pounce. (laughs) 
The grandchildren had no idea who would be at country grandma's table on any given day. It could be family. It could be friends. It could be strangers. People right off the road. They would come, and they were always welcome at country grandma's kitchen. They were treated like family. Everybody ate. The food was plentiful, and even though country grandma also had very little money, there was always laughter at her table. She was a big woman. She loved to tell jokes. She loved to laugh at her own jokes. And when she laughed at her own jokes, she'd always pound the table three times, kind of a Trinitarian thing or something. (laughs) Barnes says that though he was much more comfortable at country grandma's table, of course, he was grateful for both tables and their part they played in his life. Because city grandmother taught him things like civility and respect and hard work. Lessons he's never forgotten. Besides, Barnes says, he knew beyond all knowing all through growing up that he was so welcome at both tables. I wonder if Jesus' invitation to be called a friend is like those two tables. When Jesus invites you to be a friend, Sometimes this is a call to duty, a duty far beyond figuring out what fork to use, hard but honorable duty in service of others. Sometimes, though, it's a call to sit at a table of laughter and bring in everybody you can find and equally share in exactly the same thing. Sometimes you are the one on the outside looking in, and Jesus calls you friend, and you're startled, and everyone around you is startled by that audacious claim, and we are brought in and embraced and respected and fed. Friends of Jesus take risks in their faith in service of God. Friends of Jesus make friends with those who've been forgotten. They work for justice in God's creation in quiet, humble, non-showy ways. They also know that Jesus calling them friends is not dependent on them climbing some ladder to get into Jesus' good graces. But there's also people who show up at a very different table, country grandma's table. They're strangers, the unexpected, the uninvited. Sometimes the person at country grandma's table is you. And guess what? Jesus calls them all friend. Two tables, same grace, nothing but friendship on Jesus' terms. We seem to be in a season in our land and in our culture, where there seems to be a premium being placed on sorting people. Those who are friends and those who are not friends. Those who have a right to be in and those who we need to have stay on the curb. Those who we'll call family and those we will shun. Some even use the Bible. Some even use Jesus as self-declared proof that this sorting is the duty of those for whom Jesus calls friend. Thinking of the two grandmothers' tables, are are there those that we can say don't belong at either table? Jesus says in this text, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends. Are there those who Jesus just cannot call friend? With all the duty and hope that goes with being Jesus' friend. I scoured the four Gospels to try to find an answer to that. I searched for all the examples I could find of Jesus deciding he could not call them friend. I looked for some situation when Jesus turned somebody away from the table. I searched and searched for a time Jesus finally said to someone, I don't want to eat with you at any table. I cannot be your friend. I searched and I searched. And you know what I came up with when I searched for the time when Jesus turned somebody away from God's table? When Jesus refused to call someone friend under this commandment of love? Your silence is exactly right. I found nothing. I found not one example. 